taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning. Welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR. My name is Tina Janukas. 3CR broadcasts from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Today on the show, I have Mark Roberts. Mark is well known to Australian poets. He is the editor or co-editor of Rochford Street Review and co-editor of Rochford Press. Mark is a poet in his own right, a critic and the publisher of the long-running P76 magazine with eight issues. Mark was recently in Melbourne for the Grassroots Sonic Poetry Festival where he and his partner, Linda Adair, launched P76 as part of the Sonic Poetry Festival. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. A pleasure, Mark. Would you like to begin with a poem before we launch into our interview? Okay, I'll read a poem from Concrete Flamingos, which is my book that came out in 2016. You can also tell us about the title, actually, which I find fascinating, Concrete Flamingos. There's a Australian singer-songwriter, Ed Cooper. Many people will, have, will know him from The Saints, a very early punk band that came out of Brisbane. Um, he was a guitarist in that. Later on, he was in The Laughing Clowns, and for the last decade or so, he's been performing with various combinations, either solo or with bands. And we actually saw him two weeks ago in Springwood, so... There you go. The title of Concrete Flamingos comes from one of his songs called Horse Underwater. And the quote that is actually in the front of the book goes, Well, I felt like a horse underwater. You gave me that goodbye look. And I sank like a concrete flamingo in these desperate hours. Wonderful. So the concrete flamingo is you know, something people tend to put in their front yard. But yeah, it was a, a symbol of something else. This is a jazz poem, and it's called Blue. The saxophone is, of course, a saxophone, music on the edge of mellow, like a pre-Raphaelite poem crashing onto rocks. A final note lingers above the wreckage, rolling around a rock pool, sliding into a shell, as the double bass signals the end. Thank you, Mark. I am intrigued. P76 is one of the longest-running magazines in the country, coming out of grassroots poetry, and I'm intrigued as to why we only have eight issues. I think it's a sort of journal that comes out when it needs to come out. The first issue, I think, was published in the spring of 1982, and that grew out of Adam Aitken and I as being young poets, wanting to, I guess, make a splash, but also to publish the people that we thought needed to be published, young writers that we knew, together with some of the more established writers that we found interesting. We found a way to bring out a magazine, and that involved buying a second-hand Gestetner machine, having access to fancy technology such as a stencil cutter, which meant we could actually lay our pages, use illustrations, and cut Gestetner stencils by scanning them in, which was cutting-edge technology in those days, many thanks to the Sydney University Students' Union. We worked on this magazine with a silkscreen cover, using the model of magazines such as Magic Sam, Your Friendly Fascist to a Degree, and you know, some of the journals that Chris Hemmingsley was putting out, such as Ear in the Wheatfield. Done on a shoestring basis, really, and 
distributed through the post, through readings and through word of mouth. What's fascinating about P76, which I was leafing through at the Sonic Poetry Festival, is the poets you published, some very well-known names in Australian poetry mm. today and even, I suppose, at the time. Mm. Oh, look, in the first issue, we were lucky enough to have uh, poems by John Forbes, Chris Mansell and a number of other writers. We did make a connection with writers in Melbourne through some friends who were publishing poetry magazines, running readings at the time in Melbourne. It was building a relationship between poets and writers that I think you know, still exists today. Well, what I find interesting, of course, is that Rochford Street Review is an online journal. Mm. Those collaborations have certainly continued in your life as a publisher. Yeah. In lots of ways, Rochford Street Review is a logical extension of what we were trying to do with P76. As technology changed, we looked at ways of utilising that technology. I realised the potential of email and what was then emerging as the internet. And for a while, we, we ran something called Australian Writing Online, AWOL. We actually tried to set up a small press distribution service. I think we had the first online bookshop in Australia, which was very rudimentary. We couldn't work out how to take payments over the internet, so you ordered a book and sort of mailed your money in. We were working with very basic HTML in those days, and nobody really knew what to do. We did apply to the Australia Council for some support, and their reaction was the internet that's never going to be a tool that writers are going to use so yeah we've come a long way since those days Mm. of course the interesting thing about Rochford Street Review is that uh, it attracts many poets it has a rich content of essays and uh, poetry and criticism that brings me to my next question which is your own journey into poetry I'm very interested in knowing how you first got into poetry what drew Mm. you to the scene Yes, it's, it's an interesting question, why, why we write? In my case, I think I was always attracted to words. I used to pretend to write. I loved typewriters when I was a, a very young child. So if I could tap something out on a typewriter and see words appearing on paper, well, letters appearing on paper, they didn't have to be words. There was sort of something visually satisfying about that. And then listening to music, I think a lot of people get into poetry through listening to the lyrics of, you know, songs and things like that. Obviously Dylan was a huge influence in those days in, in terms of if you listen to music with or lyrics with some sort of meaning, Dylan was somebody you went to. So yeah, trying to write poetry as a teenager, um, interesting experience. I think I discovered the poetry scene by walking into a bookshop in Sydney and seeing a copy of a magazine called New Poetry and it was, yeah people actually publish poetry magazines. And, of course, that was Bob Adamson's magazine at the time. So very excitedly sent off a poem to New Poetry and got a reply back saying, very long poem. I did like these three words, though. Was it a disheartening experience for you? I think I was excited that somebody recognised that at least three words sort of worked on the page. The suggestion was maybe you should think about editing a little bit more, which is, you know, to a young poet is really, really good advice. Those are the early days. So how did you develop from there? So it was the time that the Poet Union was setting up. So having discovered new poetry, I then discovered the Poet Union in New South Wales had just set up readings at the, I think it was the Royal Standard. And that's where I met people like uh, Les Weeks and Chris Mansell, Ray Desmond Jones, 
and became part of that New South Wales Poets Union scene. And once you start going to poetry readings, you start connecting with other poets, talking about poetry and understanding where you can access poetry. So where can you buy these sorts of books that you couldn't find in normal suburban bookshops? And of course, we're talking about uh, the 80s here or late 70s? Late 70s, early 80s, yeah. Yeah, and that was uh, quite an exciting time in some ways Mm. because that was the the rise of the new voices in Australian poetry. Yeah, the, the Royal Standard readings were actually really interesting because they were in a pub and there were a lot of people walking through the readings. So, you know, we had an incident with sailors from HMAS Melbourne in, in one of those early readings. Ray Desmond Jones actually sat down with them during interval and conducted a very quick workshop with these sailors who were busy heckling and and they actually came up and read in the open section in the second half. So, you know, sea ditties and things like that, but they quietened down and listened. It was, it was actually quite an interesting experience. There was lots of conflict. There were, you know people punching each other and um, uh, factional disputes and, you know, it it was a very dynamic time. What were those disputes about? Um, Which American school of poetry you followed? I guess a lot of them were also personal disputes as well. There there was a fight between two poets. I remember on the night that Wild and Woolly Warehouse burnt down, which was um, an interesting poetic night, yes. That brings me to... A question I have, which is your own poetics. Where do you draw your influences from? Back then there was uh, the rise of the new poetry, the American influence, the rejection of more academic uh, poetry or more traditional Mm. poetry. So I'm very interested in your work and how your work began to develop. Would you like to perhaps read us a poem and uh, tell us a little bit about your own work? Okay. um, Look, I can read one of my American school-inspired poems, if you like. This is from Concrete Flamingos. Letter to Frank. So this is my New York school poem. Dear Frank, they are opening up urban consolidation corridors. That means big apartments. Knock down grandmother's house and build a skyscraper. Like you, I want to be a construction worker poet, though my silver hat would have a union logo on it. No charms in my pocket, but I am charming. And I have a copy of the planning regulations, which I'm rewriting in the style of the New York School. When I'm finished, I might go and see Les to see what the poets in the Ukraine are doing. Do they write poems while riding on girders? I catch the train to St. Leonard's and lose internet connection. Bloody Vodafone. But no matter, it reconnects after a second, and all I've lost is some punctuation, which I'm not using in this poem anyway. St. Leonard's has already been consolidated, and all the construction workers have gone home, maybe to write poems. That's, uh, of course, uh, an homage to Mm. Frank O'Hara, his famous poem. It is, yes. What I find interesting about your poems is you have a, a wonderful eye for detail. There's very much an eye that observes. We were talking a little bit earlier about what some of your influences might be. Is Frank O'Hara, who had a superb eye for detail, Mm. one of those influences? He was an early influence. I guess that was also trying to sort of understand the generation of 68 and that American influence. I remember reviewing a book of essays about the American influence, I think that Tranter had edited years and years ago for the Sydney University Union Recorder, of all things, which was actually a really interesting sort of discussion. 
paper around the American influence. And that was obviously a lot lot of Frank O'Hara in that. You know, it's very John Forbes sort of um, feel as well. Um, yeah, so, yeah, O'Hara was a, a def- definite influence. Another early influence, obviously, was Michael Dransfield, who, you know, wrote some brilliant poetry in his first two collections and you know, had a very tragic life. But fragments of his later poetry are also sort of quite amazing. Are there other influences from poets that were perhaps from an older generation? Look, I was very influenced at uni by the uh, English poets of the 1930s, and that was probably a lot to do with their politics, their connection with the Communist Party at the time, their involvement in the Spanish Civil War. I wrote extensively on a critic and poet called Christopher Cordwell, who was quite an amazing figure, not a very good poet, but he wrote very good criticism from a Marxist perspective. He also wrote detective fiction to live off, and he also, as an engineer, designed airships and automatic transmissions and edited engineering journals. So, very interesting chap. Died in his first day of battle in the Spanish Civil War fighting the fascists. Wow. Mm. You mentioned to Bob Adamson. Mm. Obviously, you went on to have a productive poetic relationship with Bob Adamson. Were there any other such relationships that developed over your poetic career? Obviously, you you read poets, you get to know them, and you're, you're heavily influenced by them. I mean, Ray Desmond Jones was another poet who heavily influenced me. He taught me how to use a Gestetner machine by turning up at my house with the stencils for his magazine and basically getting me to print it for him. He was always a great supporter, very understanding of younger poets, very good, a very good mentor. Rochford Press published his final collection after he died. He put together a collection and, you know, asked if, if we were interested in publishing it. It was sort of quite a, an emotional experience doing that. Yes, and you had a, a Melbourne launch for that. Mm. I was there at the... Um, at the Dan. At the Dan with yeah. John Jenkins launching it. John Jenkins, Robbie, uh, yeah. Gig Ryan. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Welcome back. My name is Tina Janukas and you're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. Today I'm speaking with Mark Roberts, poet, critic and publisher of Rochford Street Review and Rochford Press. Mark, I would... Uh, like to hear another poem from you. Okay. I might read one of the poems from uh, P76, Issue 8. A lot of my recent work is almost eco-poetry, I guess, looking at details in the landscape, the history, our relationship to the earth, history, what's been there before. And this poem is called Walgan Valley. The Walgan Valley is a very beautiful place, just... um, I guess, north of Lithgow, on the edge of the Blue Mountains. In the early 19th century, it was a shale mining town. They built a rail line down into the valley, a very precarious, narrow-gauge rail line, and they had sort of shale oil distilling happening, very, very heavy industry. That industry collapsed, and the the towns basically disappeared. There's a few industrial ruins there and the remains of a pub, the road down into that valley is very precarious and 
uh, was washed away recently. The access into the valley now is very limited. So this poem is called Walgan Valley. Late afternoon light turns escarpments orange gold. Language carried on wind. A history we can't read. This valley protects itself. The road through the pass collapses after rain. Rock falls threaten. Industrial ruins reclaimed by bush. Ghosts walk forgotten roads built over silent genocide. This was never our country. That's quite a powerful poem. That line about language carried on wind. Mm. That brings me to my next question, actually, and you've already touched on this. Obviously, writing over four decades, one's poetic sensibilities do change. Mm. How have yours evolved over this period of time? You asked me before about influences, and I guess one of my driving influences in poetry and writing in general is political. Listening to Dylan as a teenager, one can't help but be influenced by the politics of the of his early early songs um, and that's always I think reflected in my own works trying to find a way of articulating the you know the questions the struggles that happen at the time and of course political poetry is very difficult to get right it can be trite it can be propaganda but when it works it works really well I think and that's that's a constant struggle getting that balance right and I hope that my work has developed to a point of subtlety where the politics is there the message is in the imagery and it doesn't hit you over the over the head with a hammer but it gets inside and you know makes people think yeah as as Auden said poetry you know doesn't make things happen but you know it makes slight changes I guess let's have a poem that speaks to this. Okay, what I might do is read a longer poem. Once again, this, this is a poem about nature, and it's a part of a, a long sequence of poems that I've been writing about the area around Orange in the central west of New South Wales. As a child, I spent a lot of time there on a farm, and thinking about that landscape, my personal history, the history of the country, it's actually quite important to me. It's, it's that connection to place. This is a, a, a feeling I had when I was quite young, probably in my early 20s, and it took about 30 years for this poem to sort of evolve to the point where I was sort of almost happy with it. It's called Spring Creek. Now, Spring Creek is where they found gold officially in Australia. So I think it was about 1951. People had found gold before then, but it was hushed up because it was seen as the convicts would sort of flee and things like that. After the Californian gold rush, the government suddenly said, we need gold, you know, to keep our people here. So they officially then discovered gold. And it was a place called Spring Creek, and a place called Ofer, just sort of between Bathurst and Orange. And this was in 1851? 1851, yeah. yes, sorry. Spring Creek. I drive out of town in the summer heat, across the train line, Head northeast, past a poet's birthplace, a fenced-off ruin, then through grazing land and paddocks of canola. The road narrows, paddocks are replaced by bush, then the bitumen runs out. I'm driving on gravel and dry dirt, rolling hills replaced by flatness, the road bending around boulders. 
coloured with age and moss, dust hangs behind the car. I listen to the engine and the bumps and thumps of stones and small branches banging against the floor of the car. A hairpin corner. The road turns and drops. Above the engine noise, I hear bird calls. At each hairpin, I break to a crawl and turn into my own cloud of dust. Below the road, scattered down the hillside, boulders and smaller rocks have rolled down the hill. I can see the creek now when I glance sideways, water. A final hairpin. Suddenly, I'm on the creek flat, a causeway ahead. I pull off the road onto the picnic ground and turn the engine off. Silence, sudden as a gunshot. I get out, ears still ringing, and lean against the dusty car, seeing a history, the clicking sounds of the car as it settles into stillness. The engine cooling, axles and bearings dropping into rest. The hiss of a drop on hot metal. Then the creek sounds, water flowing, breaking over rocks, shouting into the still. I walk towards the creek where gold was found, a European sacred site, sound of footprints, the crushing of dried leaves and twigs. Standing still, I become part of the landscape. Flies find me, high-pitched against the depth of water sounds. I become aware again of bird calls, a whip, a two-note song from up and down the creek valley, occasionally a unique call with no answer, a question left hanging. I see and hear the heat in front of me, the eucalyptus haze, heavy with intent. I hear it up the hillside, winds groaning, leaves move by a wind I can't feel. A breeze pushes a branch on the ridge one way, then stops. More leaves move against each other. They fall through the heat. Answering movement down the creek line or across the gully. A cacophony, a song which swirls past the history of this place, singing of a time before gold. There's such a light touch in that poem. Mm. Look, it grew out of a feeling. It was a very hot day. I'd driven out to the creek. My relations who used to live on the farm had moved into town. I was visiting them and I just... went for a drive, basically, to a place that I'd been to as a child. It was completely deserted. It was a very hot day, very still. And, you know, you think of silence, but even though there was no noise there, there was a music, there was things happening. There was wind and trees and sounds, and it was just trying to capture that feeling. And it was one of the more difficult poems I've ever written. It took a very long time. There's also the hidden history there that used to be a sacred site for Aboriginal people. There were carved trees. Uh, there were, you know, um, areas where, you know, of ceremony. All of that was removed after the, they discovered gold. Basically, topsoil was removed. Trees were, you know, the, it was just decimated. It's literally a layer of history has just been erased off the country. So there's that sort of sadness in the air as well. I um, would like to touch on something else, which is your work as a critic. Having read quite a bit of your criticism, again, I find in your criticism there is this lovely light touch in the way that you write your criticism and also the way you position the books 
that you review within the broader poetic community. So I'm interested uh, what your approach really is. Poems are conversations, really. They bounce off each other. So it is with, with books. They don't exist in vacuum. They exist as part of a culture, as part of, of a history. I think to understand a particular poet and their work, you need to understand how they fit in as part of a, a literary tradition, as part of a community. I don't think any poet exists as a complete individual. You know, their influences, they influence other people. So when you're reading or reviewing, writing criticism, I try to place that poet in that tradition. Or even the poem. I mean, you can have poems in a collection that sort of point in different directions. Uh, And to understand that, I think, makes you sort of, I guess, read the poem differently. It can mean one thing when you look at it as an entity. Uh, When it reaches out into, you know, other spaces, it can have other meanings as well. I think you bring that eye to Rochford Street Review Mm. as well. It's a a magazine, online magazine, full of some very wonderful uh, criticism and uh, reviews Mm. and, uh, of course, the poetry. How do you go about putting this magazine out, which is just an enormous amount of work? Yeah. I guess originally the intention was for it to be a purely review-focused journal, so reviews of poetry, because I, I didn't think there was a platform for that. There were reviews appearing occasionally in papers. Journals would have reviews as well, but that wasn't their main focus. Literary journals would have poetry, fiction, and reviews would tend to be at the back of the journal. I thought it was important to sort of take that and put the criticism, put the discussion around poetry front and centre. And for a long time, we only just did publish reviews and launch speeches as well. And I think the launch speech is actually a, a valid, a very important part of our lives as poets and as of the poetic culture, because launching a book means somebody has read it. They've tried to understand what the poet's doing and they're introducing that work into the community. In some cases, those speeches leap onto the page as fully formed reviews. Other times they're more conversational, but I think they're all quite valid. The other thing is we wanted to concentrate on reviewing not just mainstream work, but concentrating on small press publications as well. So the sort of work that normally wouldn't get reviewed or discussed, trying to bring that to the the fore. Along the way, we started publishing poetry as well, but not in the same way as a normal journal would sort of accept you know, submissions, go through an editing process. It's more like a conversation. We, we invite people to submit in most cases or look at what we're publishing and going, it would make sense for this person to have some poems in this issue because we're discussing something about them or it fits the context of the journal. What I find interesting about the journal is that it maintains that freshness that has influenced you from those early grassroots uh, movements that you were part of. Uh, when I go to the journal, I find that freshness is there. I hope so. You do come to times where you just go, I need to walk away for a week or so. It can get a, a bit too much. I guess the last couple of weeks is probably a good example of that, sort of deciding to sort of do the the supplement for the the Sonic uh, Poetry Festival, doing the magazine, seemed like a good idea at the time, but when you're racing up to the deadline, it's 
a different matter, but we, we made it. I think the freshness is not just in the journal, but it's in the poetry, it's in the, in the work that we, we try and pick up and publish. Let's have a final poem, Mark. Okay, this poem is called Limestone. It takes a quote from Auden, who wrote extensively about limestone in Italy. And that quote is, Rock creates the only human landscape. Memories of fish swim through the darkness of an ancient coral mountain, above fluorescence, from horizon to forgotten shore, re-shrink to an imagined significance, a point between a grounded history and an infinite curve of time, a choreographed immigration of rock and earth, a beauty that no ideology can prevent. Thank you, Mark. It's been a privilege uh, speaking with you. Thank you, Tina. I'm Tina Janukas, and you've been listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. Today I've been talking with Mark Roberts, poet, critic and publisher of Rochford Street Review, the online journal, and Rochford Press. 3CR broadcasts on 855am every Thursday at 9am, or you can download the podcast. Mark's latest collection, Concrete Flamingos, published by Ireland Press, is available online from Rochford Cottage Bookshop. Thank you for listening.